Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're looking at Thursday of the Passion Week of Jesus, and we want to look at two passages, the first in Luke 22, the other in John 13. And when we uh, put them together, we see how, how they really fit together in quite an incredible way. In fact, I think this is an example of why, although it is best to take each book as as by itself and take it seriously without getting aid from outside of it. At the same time, it is helpful to, to put them together in chronological order to see what led to what and, and all that. I think this is a good example of that latter approach. So what we get in on Thursday, at least for our focus today, is the uh, what happens in the upper room. Now, there's a lot of other things to happen, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I want us to focus on the upper room narratives. Beginning in Luke 22, uh, in the first 13 verses, Jesus is setting up to celebrate the Passover. This is the last uh, real Passover, you know, since, uh, at least that's what we believe as Christians. Verse 14 is the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. This would have been a traditional way of, of laying uh, or reclining. You didn't sit in a chair at a table uh, waist high. Rather, uh, you would have eaten um, laying on the floor, essentially. You would have laid on each other and whatnot. Um, so this would have been typical at this time. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe uh, to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, uh, notice here, this is your, your basic, uh, you know, following through with with the institution of the Lord's Supper. Probably isn't a whole lot here that is new to, to most of the people who may be watching or listening to this. Uh, I do like to highlight the uh, Luke's account matches verbatim uh, Paul's account in 1 Corinthians, even though 1 Corinthians is prior to the writing of Luke. So, so clearly the two of them are uh, getting their information from a common source that is quite early, which means it is highly, highly, highly likely. We could probably even call it a historic fact that this really happened, Jesus really did institute this, and that it is a vital ordinance of the local church. And of course, this is where we get the ordinance of communion, which we'll be celebrating this upcoming Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. Um, but you notice what Luke does is he, he moves directly from the Lord's Supper to his betrayer. Now, Paul will take this and he'll say, don't eat of the um, bread and, and wine um, unworthily. Like they don't don't heap judgment upon yourself. So so communion is a time of remembrance. It is also a time of repentance. And so we remember what Christ has done for us. At the same time, it, it should convict us to repent of our bitterness, repent of our sin, repent of our wickedness, repent of of of, of everything. And so um, you have both of those in Luke's account. And it's also striking that Jesus is sharing this meal with one whom he knows will betray him. That, that, that is grace. 
That is a love beyond what many of us can can fathom. Well, notice where it goes from here. So, so Jesus says, look, one of you is going to betray me. And, of course, where do these teenage boys go, right? Their egos are going to go through the roof. So verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Right? If I'm the greatest, then I'm not going to be the one that's betraying Jesus, right? He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's, it's striking, isn't it, how easy it is for, take, for us to take a sacred moment and, um, and ruin it. And so Jesus is given this word of warning for the purpose of repentance. Are you, could you be the one that could betray me? And the response is, well, look, this guy over here might, but not me, because I'm the man. I'm, I'm too great for that. As a result, they completely miss what it is that Jesus had said. I'm going to die for you. Or we could say, I'm going to die because of you. And they've completely missed the point. And, and that is where uh, approaching these from a parallel perspective is really helpful because uh, the synoptics want to emphasize the Lord's Supper and the egos and all that sort of stuff. And then they jump right into Gethsemane. John, and I believe, and we talked about this in our devotions of John, I believe John's first readers had access to at least one of the Gospels, probably Matthew or Mark. Um, and I, I go back and forth on that. But... Um, and so he, he skips the Lord's Supper. There's, there's not a Lord's Supper in here. There is the language of the Lord's Supper in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Eat my body, drink my blood. But he doesn't have it. And it's a central part of Christian theology, particularly that of um, ecclesiology, the, the, the function and the practice and the doctrine of the church. However, what John does is he, he has an upper room scene. It just lacks dinner. Um, well, at least at least the Lord's Supper, we, we should say. This this institution part of it. So, so starting in chapter 14, he has like a three-chapter uh, upper room discourse where Jesus is um, given some of his final teachings to the disciples. The synoptics skip that. John emphasizes it. However, when, we, when you put Luke and John together, something interesting happens. Remember, we just read where the, the disciples are bragging about how awesome they are. But then John has at this point Jesus getting up, assuming the, the, the garments of a slave. That's what it says there in verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, and tied it around his waist. That, that is the posture, that is the dress of an oriental slave. And it says there, verse 5 of John 13, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is the, the scene of washing feet. And, and whenever we juxtapose it with what Luke tells us, it makes all the more sense now. And so Jesus responds to their arrogance. Yes, he's, he's saying, look, don't, 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 don't do this. But then he gets up and quietly demonstrates what it means to be truly great, to be willing to serve, to be willing to wash feet. And we, we talked about this chapter when we went, went through devotion, so I don't want to repeat all of that. You can, you can access all that at our YouTube channel and my, and my podcast. But uh, you remember that at this time that um, when you had dirt roads, and so your feet would be covered in dirt and mud 
and animal feces and everything else. And so uh, one of the primary functions of the host was to see to it that, that their guest had their feet washed. And so it was such a demeaning act that not even Jewish slaves were expected to do this. This was something the Gentiles should do. And then, and then you work your way up the social ladder and who it is that, that is going to do this. What you have here is a group of disciples who, who, are, who are walking around uh, this, this, this home and they've, they've, they've not dealt with this. They, they, they are dirty. And uh, here they are talking about how awesome they are. And Jesus, who is superior to everything, remember our study of Hebrews, and yet he stoops down to wash their feet to cleanse them. Now, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment, resumed his place. I love that language, right? He resumed his place. He's at the center of the table. He, he is the center of attention. He's the rabbi. Uh, but but for, for a time, he, he, he became a, like a slave. This is very similar to what Paul talks about in Philippians 2. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is uh, verses 12 to, to 17 is why some Christian traditions practice feet washing as an ordinance. So you would have baptism, Lord's Supper, and washing of feet. Um, that isn't um, our tradition as Southern Baptists. Th- there have been Baptists who have done that. And maybe you've been to a service that, that has, has done this, maybe as a one-off or maybe as a, um, a regular tradition. I don't know, but this is where it comes from. I don't think it is an ordinance of Christ. I think Christ's point isn't that when you come to church, you'd be willing to wash one another's feet. But rather, uh, it is that your daily life should be one of service to other people. That's the point of the passage. And Jesus is saying that if, if I am your teacher and Lord, and I am, and I'm willing to do this, how much more so should you be willing to do this for me and certainly for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So that is how Jesus deals with the arrogance of the disciples. He models for them true humility, never surrendering his greatness, but still serves because he is truly great. Hope to see you guys here tomorrow.